describe myself as angry a lot. And people don't understand what that means when I say it. Um, they think of it as, oh, you're hostile, you're rude, you're um, abrasive, you're destructive. And those are aspects of anger. But what it is, is really that I am motivated by the things that aren't right to put my energy into trying to make them right, to make them better. And that is what my anger is for me. Welcome to the Mindful Rebel Podcast, the podcast where mindfulness and leadership intersect. My name is Sean Moore, and I'm the host and creator of the platform, The Mindful Rebel, as well as an educator, scholar, and creative. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Talon Kell. Talon is a writer, cosplayer, and podcaster in Atlanta, Georgia. She writes about racism, cosplay, interracial relationships, and pop culture fandom through the lens of social justice. She also conducts panels on these topics at fandom conventions, both in and out of Georgia. Her cosplay essays have been featured by NBC, Safety Pinbox, Black Girl Nerds, Fabulize Magazine, Ravishly.com, Britain Co., Huffington Post, and Punk Black. Talon has self-published two essay books, Breaking Normal and Still Breaking Normal, both available on Amazon.com. She also works in collaboration to create and produce a web series, Time Out with Talon Kell, where she interviews Black creators about their projects and co-hosts the New Wakanda podcast. I'm um, have the pleasure to talk with uh, Talon Kell. Um, I had the opportunity to meet her at DragonCon this year um, through participating in the academics track, um, where we had the opportunity to present on the politics, uh, politics and comics topic. So this is going to be great. Um, we had a quick little side conversation while we were uh, on the panel, um, and I thought it'd be great to kind of continue the conversation through the podcast. So Talon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, the, where I'd like to start with my guests is that, and, and what's great about you is that you you do a lot of dope things, a lot of dope things. You know, <laughs> as an author, speaker, essayist, cosplayer, podcast host, you do a lot, right? Talk to me about, you know, how you got on this journey and maybe talk to me a little bit about, you know, maybe the lens in which you um, are approaching all these different aspects of who you are. You know, and it's it's so funny. Um, I, gosh, how do I even get started? Okay, so <laughs> I started with essays. I've always wanted to be a writer, right? I always mm -hmm. thought I was going to be a writer. And when I was a kid, that was like my dream, sort of. It's one of many dreams. I have like a ton of dreams. Like I wanted to be a professional football player. Um, I also wanted to be in a think tank. So based on just that, I wanted to be a writer in the think tank and a professional football player. I have a wide range of interests. <laughs> um, and so, but I didn't write because I honestly didn't think I was good enough. And I've been trying to write fiction. I keep saying I'm trying and I haven't. I believe that there's a certain headspace I need to be in to write fiction. And I'm too cluttered up with too many other things to actually do that right now. So um, instead, I've been writing essays, and my essays really started in 2015 because I read something online that was such hot garbage that I was like, how the hell did this get published? <laughs> like, how did this happen? I was like, somebody actually paid someone? And at the time, I didn't realize how many writers weren't getting paid. <laughs> That's, real. Was, That's real. But somebody got published. They published this tripe. And it was so bad. And I was like, and this just, it was obviously just somebody just giving like their fart opinion. You know, they just put it out in the air and just let it do what it's going to do. And it was awful. And I said, you know what, if people can get published writing this, I'm sure I got something to say. And I decided to start writing at that point. And in the beginning, I didn't know what I was going to write about. Like, I was like, oh, am I going to do kind of like geek reporting? Am I going to talk about conventions? Am I going to do movie reviews? Like, what am I going to write about? And I spent several months just writing about whatever. Um, but the things that actually resonated the most with me and were the most helpful for me and I felt for other people were the personal essays that I started writing about, you know, being a, a fat black woman in this geek space um, with a, a mm. white husband, um, an Ivy League education, but a shit job. And, <laughs> and yeah. you know, I do cosplay, which is a very 
um, appearance-based activity, and yet I don't have the aesthetics for that that's considered to be popular for that activity. And just the different ways that I've watched so many things evolve in the geek space. So yeah, I, I started writing about that. And the very first essay that really blew up was the one when I talked about my relationship with my husband. And that actually happened because he and I had gotten into a fight about, um, it, I think it was another police killing of a black person. And he said something that was so outrageously ignorant that I about lost my shit. And we started going at it and I needed some place to talk about it. And I went online, not even to talk about it. I went online to find other people who were talking about it to see what they had to say. And I couldn't find anybody that was talking about these hard conversations that you have when you're married, when you're in a, in a racial marriage as a black person to a white person or a black person to anyone who's not black. The dynamics change depending on the two people and what races they are. But, you know, as a black woman with a white man, you know, we've got racism, we've got sexism, those two big conversations that happen. And nobody, everybody was doing the, oh, love is everything, love conquers all, all that nonsense. And I was like, that's not what really happens. And so I started writing about what really happens. And um, yeah, it's kind of just grown from there. Hmm. So one of the things I want to I want to ask because I, I had a chance. There was, I think, right after Dragon Con, I think that you know I follow you on Facebook and I, I saw one of your posting just a, a overall perspective on you know these black spaces or creating or crafting black spaces at conventions like um, these large scale fandom conventions. Um, and I was reading the article and I, uh, the, the essay and, you know, it, it hit home. You know, I've, I volunteer outside of, you know, presenting this year, I this would be my third year volunteering um, at the convention. And it's always such a, um, how I put it, <laughs> it's always. Um, <laughs> deceptively diverse, deceptively <laughs> inclusive. Oh, I like that. Um, it is very much that. It is very much because I, you know, it's one of those things. It's crazy because it's like I get excited every year and then it comes and then I'm emotionally drained by being in a space that touts one thing, um, but, you know, it is it is being executed in a very different way. Yeah. And so um, I would like, I guess, maybe the thought of or your perspective or maybe like the state of you know, black folks in these spaces, because it's something that it's come, it comes up and it's sad. Uh, me and a good friend of mine, um, you know, we volunteer on the same track together. And every time it's, we are always in conversation, like, why are we doing this? Like, why, like, why? Because it's, we, we you know, it, to be in a space where you're putting yourself um, around so much microaggressive behaviors and, uh, you know, dealing with situations that, you know, one is like, I'm volunteering, like, I'm not, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not getting paid for this. But <laughs> I'm not getting paid for this, but because you have a love for the content, you want to be in the space. And, and, and there's a there's a weird tension there. What are your thoughts on maybe like just the state of, you know, folks like us being in these spaces? Oh my gosh. Okay, man, you just sat back and you just went right in. Uh, <laughs> it is a very challenging place to be. Um, I, so that essay, I know what you're talking about. I, I basically was like, Dragon Con has black people, but it's not black. And mm. it was because I had several friends who were, who came to Dragon Con and for the first time ever, they were participating in the nightlife there. Like they normally would come and vend or do panels or whatever, but they would leave in the evening, go get dinner and they were done with Dragon Con, but they were staying overnight nearby and they wanted to know where the black people were. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. You didn't know where you were. Um, this ain't that kind of party. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, it's not, it's not a black space. This is not a black space. There are a lot of black people here, but the black geek community, just like black people throughout our country, you know, um, there's a, somebody I watch on YouTube who specifically defines black Americans who were born here as descendants of chattel slavery, right? Defend, mm -hmm. descendants of American chattel, chattel slavery, which is a great way to put it, because that way it very it specifies the kind of black people who have, you know, their 
parents were here, their grandparents were great parents who basically came out of slavery, as opposed to people who have emigrated over later, um, or whose parents are from, you know, another country and happened to come here in their first generation, because the experience is really different. Um, and you find as Black Americans in these spaces, you, I mean, in America, you just grow up immersed in racism and anti-Blackness. And there comes a point where you either are able to recognize it and push back and fight it, or a lot of people just accept it as the norm. And then there's some people who just embrace it fully and accept that. And then they try to make themselves different by being the different kind of Black person who can be around white people and be the cool Black person with the white people. And they're all like safe with them, but not really because they're still Black. And the geek community has a lot of those, oh, you think you're the special Negro and you're not. And you can distance mm -hmm. yourself from black people as much as you want, but you're always going to be black. And treating the rest of us like something's wrong with us and we're not good enough doesn't make you better. It just makes you a fool. And the geek community is rife with black people like that. And they are not reflecting on it. They're, they're having to reflect on it more now because the, the conversation around racism has changed so much over the past five years. It's so much more open. It's so much more in your space that they, they can't avoid it like they used to be able to. And so you end up with a lot of people who are, and I'm gonna, it's a, it's a spectrum of people where you have the straight up, I'm pro-black and I can't, I don't care about what you white people are doing. And then the other ones who are like, no, white people are my world and I'm actually gonna protect them from other black people. And I run into a lot more of the ones who are trying to protect whiteness mm -hmm. at Dragon Con than the other ones. And you have people who are in between and I understand how that in between happens because at my job, I'm surrounded by white people. So I have to compromise on some things and be in these, you know, these microaggressions and deal with that. But in my personal life, God, I married a white guy, so I screwed that up. But, <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we working on it. But still, like, when that came to my friends and stuff, that wasn't a part of the friendship circle at all. So, I mean, it's really, I guess... For me, it's about managing expectations, but it's also about being transparent and actually protective of your community. And if your community is Black people, then I think there should be boundaries in place. And I think that people should be thinking, being very conscious of what it is that they're doing and how they're protecting those spaces for people instead of feeling like they have to invite white people into everything. But, you know, as soon as you start getting into the economics of Blackness, <laughs> and catering to whiteness, that then changes the conversation again. Because if you're somebody who your business model is really rooted in white approval, that changes how you present yourself, who you're gonna associate with and all of that. And Dragon Con has never ever once pretended to not be about, you know, centering white male geeks. That's That's been what it's about from the beginning. And they haven't been challenged about it until recently and mm. even in the challenging it's it's little challenges and so and it's not enough to add up and part of it is that because as big as dragon con is and as much as we want to think it's a central location it's got like how many different tracks like 15 20 different tracks mm -hmm. that are run by all different people with different rules and different leadership styles and so forth so you're dealing with you know a bunch of small groups of people who have grown up in white supremacy, many of whom support it and haven't been challenged about it, controlling the content that is being rolled out at this huge convention. And it's interesting that you said that in terms of, you know, looking at um, the identity of, of the con in general that, you know, it took for me to sit down and it took, I feel crazy thinking about it, but it took like three, to get three years for me to sit and realize, I was like, this is just my, not my, kind of you know the thinking about like the structure of the convention because i i understand what you mean in terms of it being very very white male centered in terms of um fandom and geekdom and what that means and what that looks like and that that was a hard pill for me to swallow because i assumed you know my my introduction into the con was very much um as a 
individual me really embracing my own, you know, nerdum, fandom, geekdom, all that good stuff, embracing it. I'm mean, gonna be like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay, this is great. Um, and there's a space mm -hmm. for folks who <laughs> love it like I do. Um, but then really, you know, after kind of stepping in, into the space and kind of looking at and maybe taking down the, you know, the, the white sheet there that's there to say like, oh, this is really what we are. You take that down and you're like, oh no, this is, this is actually what you're selling. Um, it, it makes you kind of think about it. And I've, I've been in a really uh, contemplative state in terms of thinking about engaging with the con in particular and, and not thinking or hoping that all the spaces aren't really like that. Um, but it's been, it's been a weird journey. This year was a, this year, this year was, a, I think, extra weird um, in terms of figuring out what this space is for and if it's even for me um, as much of a, a nerd that as I am. It was like, is this even for me um, to really engage in? Because I, I felt that same way. I was like, and then, you know, that, that whole idea of the, the, the folks that look like us that are in the space or that are kind of indoctrinated in the space that, you know, it was like, they're not really here for you. You know, it were people that I would see in the con. Oh, hey, hey. You know, when you get in the space, you're like, oh, there's somebody else. And you get excited. And then it's like, oh, no, no, you're not excited. You, nope. <laughs> you're going to walk right past me like they did. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting space. It's an interesting space, to say the least. So I've been going to Dragon Con for 13 years now, right? And like my relationship with it has evolved over time. And in the beginning, I, I feel what you're saying. I, I honestly, I went there. I was like, oh, I'm gonna meet me a, a, a black geek guy, a black nerd. We're gonna hook up. I'm gonna find somebody. We're gonna hang out. We're gonna start dating, all that stuff. And them black guys was not fucking with me at all. <laughs> like at all. They all had white girlfriends. If they had girlfriends, they had white girlfriends and they were not checking for me. I was not who they were interested in. And that's fine. You know, um, I did talk to all the black people and it would be really funny because back then there were so few of us. You'd see another black person and we'd be like, oh my God. And we'd run up to each other and we'd get in a circle and we'd start talking and we would get loud and real expressive. And you would literally see a circle opened up around us of the white people who were scared to get too close because they couldn't tell if we were playing or if we were fighting. Mm. And it was like, we just hanging out, yelling at each other because we get loud because we excited. We excited to be here. <laughs> so that was, a, and to see like how that has changed over the past decade, so many more black people there. So many more people who are looking for community there. And now we have a population where like for me dragon con is all those black people who didn't know black people were geeks that's where i go and i'm like i'm gonna create content that i hope that you'll be interested in and you can find other black geeks and you can find that community that you're looking for and to me that's the important part i know that there's a lot of nonsense that goes along with it i've had panels rejected there um i've had um I don't know. I like there's situations that happen, and one of the things that in order for me to manage it was that I had to stop caring about necessarily what other people looking at me thought, and to, like consciously decide to create the community I wanted with me and the, the people I wanted around me, and that's changed a lot. In fact, over the past two years, I've gotten so much more like, listen, I'm not tolerating anti-Black bullshit. I don't care who it's coming from. I'm not having it. That a lot of the Black people I used to hang out with three, four years ago, I can't deal with now because they don't realize how toxic they are. And mm. I just, I have no tolerance for it. So while I respect that everybody, like, you know, Black people, we are not a monolith. I respect the fact that we're coming at it at different points. I'm going to create a space that I think is a safe, healthy space for Black people and keep it safe and healthy for Black people, um, even if that means that I have to kind of check other Black people about their anti-Blackness, because I think a lot of people do need to be checked about that. So yeah, I for me, it became less of, this is a place I can just chill and be myself, because that was never true. And I learned that shit the first time I was there and people couldn't tell who I was because I was the black version, you know, mm. <laughs> like I'm in cosplay. I have a big old gold Phoenix on my chest. 
who are you supposed to be? Are you Black Phoenix? Wow. Really, y'all? Like, yeah, like, so you, I learned really early on, all right, this isn't really, y'all not really feeling me like that, y'all not checking me like that, but you know what? I want to do this and I want to be here. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to be here and I'm going to invite other people to come do this with me and be here. And I'm going to meet other people who are doing this and they can hang out too or whatever, but I'm going to continue creating these spaces here because it's one, I do actually have fun once I'm, you know, surrounded by people who I like. And two, there are so many people who are other black people who are looking for it. And the only places they know to look are these huge events that I want to be there as a resource for them to be able to find where it is that they need to go. It might not be with me. I might be too uh, militant for them, and that's fine. But I also know people who aren't as you know strict as I am and who are more um, open and uh, patient with where they are <laughs> and I can kind of steer them in that direction <laughs> so yeah I, but for me it's just important to be in a space so that they know they aren't alone and that there are other people out there who are doing stuff and if you want to come talk to me about how something's fucked up I, I'm down we can do that and how we can fix it because that's really the ultimate plan how can we fix it mm. So a question I like to ask, and in particular, I love asking um, cosplayers um, this question, is that, you know, overall, and first let me say this, your cosplay, I've seen a lot of your photos, cosplay is dope, dope as hell. Uh, um, Thank you. Yeah, most definitely. What what does cosplay or, or doing, what does cosplay mean to you? Or what does it mean for you? You know, Ooh, that's always a really loaded thing. So in the beginning, it was a coping mechanism. Mm. It was a way that I could be creative um, where, you know, everybody around me was telling me I needed to fit into a box that I never could fit into. Like I was never the person that was going to be like the ideal black person. I just, it's not my personality. It's not my makeup. I physically am not that. So, you know, whatever that meant, I wasn't it. But I also have an artistic side. I don't draw, but it's just, there was something about it that just, it just helped me find a release. But it wasn't just the putting together the costume and the problem solving, oh, that's a huge aspect of it that I enjoy. A lot of it was also, I got to exhibit aspects of my personality that in a lot of scenarios was not acceptable. Um, I describe myself as angry a lot. And people don't understand what that means when I say it. Um, they think of it as, oh, you're hostile, you're rude, you're um, abrasive, you're destructive. And those are aspects of anger. But what it is, is really that I am motivated by the things that aren't right to put my energy into trying to make them right, to make them better. And that is what my anger is for me. But for a long time, it was recognizing the shit that wasn't right. So when I was in my 20s, like people were constantly telling me I need to act like this and do that and behave like this and dress like this and wear my hair like this and you shouldn't be this and you shouldn't be that. And like there was all these double standards. There was dudes treating me like trash because they felt like that's just what they could do. And, you know, bosses talking to me any which way and people saying, you know, telling me I'm stupid and incapable of doing a whole lot of different things. And none of it was true. But it was all these people giving me reminders of the place that I was supposed to take in this society. And that shit made me mad. I was real mad. And, but I was never allowed to show it because if I showed anger, even if I scowled at somebody, suddenly I was so threatening that people were like, oh, I'm going to call the, the police. Suddenly mm -hmm. it was, oh, she's dangerous, get security. Um, let it be if somebody's smaller than me, because, you know, I am a fat black woman. If they were shorter than me, if they were paler than me, anytime in any way I looked any kind of upset, I was suddenly a physical threat that needed to be nullified. And so when I got to dress up in different costumes, and my first actual like comic costume was Dark Phoenix, I did that because she was a destructive world ender. She was someone who was seen as emotionally unstable and out of control. And 
I often felt like that's how people perceived me and I could be that and I could embody that for that costume. The ironic part was that I really had fun being in costume. So every picture you have of me that year, I'm smiling every single one. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't this angry, destructive force. I was this happy girl. Like, yeah, I'm dressed up at Dragon Con. This is awesome. So yeah, it, that's not how I portrayed myself, but, but that was why I chose the character. And so it's fun that also it's a different way to kind of work with my, my, my appearance. It's not safe to be feminine in American culture. It's not safe to be feminine in a lot of areas of the world, but you know, in America, it's not, I've grown up recognizing the danger in being a woman, um, just the physicality of womanhood. And so I, for a long time, only wore like jeans and sneakers and sweatpants. And I, I, even now, I still don't really do makeup very often. I only wear it for cosplay. And like, I've been able to play more with makeup and with my look and so forth and experiment with being different types of, you know, femininity, just different ways that you can represent it and show it through cosplay in ways that I've never felt safe to do in my everyday life. Mm. So it, it speaks to a lot of different aspects of what it is to live in a society where you feel kind of like you're in perpetual danger, but you're in denial of it. <laughs> mm. So you look mm. for these opportunities where you can do it in spaces where it feels more safe and more accepted. Mm. So it's a lot. Yeah. Well, uh, one question I like to I know about you for opening there. Yeah, man. <laughs> but I thank you for opening the box. What's what's a piece of advice that you would give to um, someone who's getting started with cosplay and, and trying to figure out how to approach it? You know, my biggest thing is always know why you're doing it. So cosplay is so fascinating because when you look, it's a, it's one of those visual art forms that kind of needs an audience, right? So people always like, they want to do things that are going to be popular and that people are going to recognize. And that means, or things that speak to them. Now, a lot of times, or maybe sometimes, some of the things that speak to them are not things that are popular. And if what they want is a lot of attention, they actually are depressed when nobody knows what they're dressed up as. Mm. So they need to know what their motivation is when they're going out there. Now you have people who are like, oh, I'm going to use it, you know, as a branding tool so that I can become a model. Okay, cool. If that's the case, then, you know, get yourself a great photographer. Make sure that when you're doing your costumes that you're giving people credit and so forth, but get high quality images that you can use to help boost your popularity. If you're doing it because you want to build like really sophisticated armor and stuff, okay, that's great. You know, recognize the, that you're going to need tools and, you know, it's going to cost you money to get those tools or just figure out ways where you can get access to them so that you can start building that stuff. Like if you're doing it so that you can, for the social capital, because you just want a community, you want to make friends and it feels like everybody who cosplays friend, that's, I'm, I'm going to say that right now. That's not true. Like you need to realize <laughs> we're just people like everywhere else there's going to be people people you like people you hate people who are cool and people who suck and there are going to be people who are taking advantage of you of you there are going to be people who um are going to be mean to you for no reason so like yes you can find people to bond with with cosplay but still be aware that we're just people and we're just as fucked up as everywhere else <laughs> So but I just want people to be real aware of that. That's one. Mm. The second thing is it doesn't have to be that expensive. You can literally pull a shit out of your closet and put, put the costume together. A lot of times, most of my costumes are some clothing that I got, a cute wig, and some makeup. And then like one iconic thing from that character. Like Dark Phoenix is literally a jumpsuit. It is a red jumpsuit with like, um, it's got like gold bells on it and a gold phoenix and a gold belt. And but because of that phoenix on the chest and it's red and gold like that costume, that's the main recognizable part of it. And so people, but it's really a jumpsuit. So anytime I do Storm, for Storm, all you got to do is wear all black, put on a white wig and an X-Men emblem somewhere and you Storm. <laughs> like mm. you can pull that out of your closet and just buy a white wig. 
So it doesn't have to be over the top. It doesn't have to be super expensive. You do not have to commission, you know, outfits and spend hundreds or even thousands of dollars on stuff. You can find something that's pretty straightforward in your closet. Maybe you just buy yourself some body paint and, you know, have fun with it. So it doesn't have to break the bank. In fact, for the first eight years, a lot of my props were made from duct tape. In fact, almost all my X-Men emblems, it was just cardboard that I put duct tape over. And nobody knew in pictures at all that that's what I did. So you can uh, find ways, if you're willing to be creative, to do it inexpensively. But know why you want to do it. Like, if you don't know, you're never going to be able to fulfill that need that you're looking to, to fill. That void that you're trying to fill, you're not going to fill it if you don't know what it is. So know why. And then you can start having fun. Well, I think that's a good pivot to talk about your book, um, Breaking Normal Essays on My Fat Black Geek Life. Talk to me about um, wh why did you decide to pull together, you know, um, your writing into the format of a book and, you know, what that process was like for you? All right. So I, I started writing essays in 2016. Um, it was, I think a lot of it was, I saw the way the election was going and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, this, this, this guy might win. He, uh. people are really voting. They're like into this guy. And I started, like, I had all kinds of panic attacks and stuff. And I kind of started writing about it. And I felt like, Actually, I didn't. I got so much feedback online from what I was writing that I was like, okay, people are literally saying that they're reading this and it's changing their perspective a little bit. It's giving them kind of some insight into why this shit is a problem. And so um, a friend of mine at the time was like, why don't you take it if you need, you know, why don't you just make it into a book and see if you can sell it? And I was like, nobody's going to buy this. It's online for free. Why would I even do that? But then like I thought about it and I was like, there are some people who aren't online that need to read this shit. Maybe if I curate it into a book, they can give it to their racist ass relatives and <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll learn something. Like, so that was really what it was. It was, let me curate the essays that I think were the most, um, I guess, not iconic, but just informative and helpful and make it into a, an actual bindable product that somebody could go and give to someone else or they could have for themselves and refer to without having to go to my site and try and find it. Especially if they're not, you know, somebody who likes to be on the internet very often. And that was the whole thinking behind it. So at that point it was go to all my essays, see which ones I think are worth publishing and which ones aren't. So the stuff where I talked about, oh, this is what happened at DragonCon this year. I didn't put that in there because usually it was kind of like a review. Um, Oh, this is why I didn't like this movie. So, you know, if it's if the actual commentary was something where I would thought it brought something a different conversation to the table, then I would include it. And if it were something where I thought it was, you know, just fluff, I didn't. And that was basically how I chose that. And that was my first time ever publishing anything. It's self-published, so I put it all together in the Word document and used CreateSpace to upload it and yeah that was a learning process in itself and I'll be honest with you when um, I didn't realize when I was writing these essays because all my essays have footnotes right because I was mm -hmm. reading a lot of news stories and what I, I made sure to actually you know make a reference section so that people can look up those articles you know either in the digital version or the hard copy version and when I was actually putting together the reference list, there were so many like titles that were just so violent and hateful and just, it was, I mean, it was about what it was being, you know, a black woman, a black person, a woman, being all of these things in this society that, that are actively being violently oppressed. And I got depressed looking at all the titles and I actually had to put it down for like a month and just walk away because just curating all the, the, the news articles that I use for reference, I mean, it broke my heart actually. Like I couldn't believe how much horrible stuff I'd been reading over and over and over again so I could write these essays. And it's, 
I mean, it was it was kind of traumatizing in itself. And so mm. this year, I actually had to take a different stance. And I'm like, I gotta stop reading so much news because it's making it hard for me to literally get up in the morning. My husband would like hold me. I would just cry. I would just lay in bed and cry because I'm like, I don't even understand this world that we live in anymore. So after doing that, right, that was 2017 when I compiled the essays and put them together and actually published them. Um, there became, I switched over how I started doing my work, the type of work I was doing. And I said, I need to bring something that is not negative to the table. Like I can talk about this negative shit over and over again. It's just hurting me. So I need to figure out what it is I want to do to try and contribute something positive to make the world a better space. And so I started doing creator interviews where I went, I go to conventions and I talk to black creators about the work that they're doing, um, the products that they make, and you know, basically where people can find them and so forth so that I can start curating, a, you know, basically a directory, so to speak, of creatives who were creating the art that they wanted to see because they didn't see it out there. And um, that is one of the ways that I decided to kind of switch my platform from this is why the world sucks to this is some cool stuff that's happened in the world. This still sucks, but people are still doing cool shit. So let's talk about that too. And it gave me some balance. Mm. What have you, in terms of that, that list that you've been curating with, with, you know, black creators, black creatives, what have, what have you learned in that process of pulling, pulling a resource like that together? So, um, I've learned a lot about being in front of the camera. Uh, I have a producer, Keisha Stovall, who does all the filming for me and she edits the videos and all of that. And she's been completely wonderful. Um, so I've had to learn how to kind of be an interviewer, which I didn't, I'd never done before. And you can tell on my first videos and <laughs> it's a growing <laughs> process. <been> Listen, <laughs> it is. And it cracks me up to even look at it where I'm just like, wow, I didn't know what the hell I was good enough, you know, carry on. So yeah, I learned how to do that. But also, um, it gave me a different perspective on conventions, but it also made me look at the demographics of like the artist alleys even more. So one of my focuses is black women creators, right? And there were more than mm. one artist alley I would go to and I might find one or two black women there in the artist alley maybe like i just came back from new york comic-con and i saw maybe four black women like vendors in the artist alley out uh. of, i mean and there were a lot of people there so like it made me that much more aware of how few black women are in these spaces um onyx con it was the same thing i went and the women most of the women there there was like one woman who had her own art and her own product the other women there were the spouses and support for the men who were vending there. And I was in shock. And that's and that was a completely black convention with a black vendor room. So that tells you there, there is something that's happening in the background where black women aren't in these spaces. And mm. we know a lot of it is institutional stuff. We all know that it's, you know, there's there's certain societal attitudes and so forth that are contributing directly to this but it's still very like interesting to see that right in your face and then realize how much you weren't noticing that before and this is and it's because i noticed it there like i started looking at you know black women in movies and there are a lot of people online movie reviewers and so forth who already talk about this all the time but i started looking at like trailers for television shows for movies for, for um even web series sometimes and you would look especially with the mainstream media stuff and there wouldn't be black women in anything like literally nothing or if they were in there they'd be like a bit part they might not even be included in the advertising and so you were just kind of like wow i didn't realize how much i wasn't there and when you threw in something like you know fat if there was a fat woman having like you don't see fat black women except their certain stereotypes at all. And so like mm. now I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, there's no fat people in the future unless it's to be some kind of moral lesson about what not to be. 
Um, there's hardly any black people and usually not really black people in the future. So when people start talking about Afrofuturism, it makes you realize how much more important that stuff really is because we are literally erased from just about any narrative that's about the future when it comes to mainstream culture. Mm. I think that's a, that's kind of a good transition into, into the other series of questions I want to ask because, you know, in thinking about, you know, that this vision of, when we think about vision and ideas, sometimes topics of leadership come up. And so I'm, I'm always interested in, in hearing folks' perspective on what leadership is. And so um, I'd like to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on leadership and maybe how do you define um, that topic or idea? That is such an interesting question because I, in all honesty, I hate self-proclaimed leaders. Whenever I, mm. I meet somebody and they're like, yes, I'm a leader in this and I'm a leader in that. And I'm like, you're a narcissist and probably an asshole. Like, <laughs> I have a real <laughs> struggle <laughs> with that because to be a, a leader, right? You have to have a community of followers. How, how does that work? How does that happen? Like everybody's got different interests and different priorities. And those priorities are constantly shifting based on whatever personal things that they have going on. So you kind of, leadership is actually people who have been assigned leadership. And I understand this too. They aren't really trying to be leaders. They're just trying to improve a situation that they see as a problem. And then other people drop the mantle of leader onto them. And then they find themselves in this new role. And you see a lot of people, they flounder in it because they don't know how to be a human anymore. They only know how to be, they, they start trying to think of themselves as like a symbol of some sort. They have to represent this and represent that. People keep thrusting that kind of title onto me in some ways. And I'm like, I get what you're trying to say. I'm not really trying to lead anybody. I just want y'all to think about shit differently. I'm not a role model. I'm a human being and I'm, I'm screwing up. And so I don't like even using the word leader because it actually does start to erase the humanity of the person to whom it's attached. Mm. So, it, it, right? Like it's weird, right? Right. And I, I think it's interesting because, you know, you when you think about folks who are... Hmm, our current societal situation with our president, I think, is one of those outliers to this situation. Um, because, you know, some folks, some folks uh, like him because of him being very, quote, I'm, I'm doing air quotes over here, very, very normal, very um, <laughs> regular down to earth kind of guy. And, um, BS words. But, um, <laughs> when, when you think about leadership, when you think about leadership prior to him, there was a very, a very, a very perspective on that in terms of a leader having this kind of pristine, perfect type of image, image and what that they means and what that looks like. And it's very curated. It's a curated mm -hmm. image that actually ends up being a lie. And so we've created this whole like kind of identity that is built in you being a, a liar to a large number of people because our leaders are supposed to be, like you said, perfect. And that's not true. That's not true for anybody. So it makes me shy away from that. And I know that that's, that's a, I don't know. And then there's the, that whole idea of people who seek out being leaders, being that they're, they're looking for power. They're looking for control over other people's lives. And that right there, is problematic. So it, <laughs> <laughs> you could just see where I'm just like, yeah, I don't like that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, can, it can be a loaded word when it's not, I think when it's wielded um, in a way that can be a bit coercive and maybe, you know, see the seeking of power in that is where is where leadership can gotta get pretty scary because you get situations like what we're in right. now when people are seeking it out of power outside of it being a calling to help people and help situations become better um i think that's where it gets you know it's dicey it's it's, it's about intent it's about intent in it but even with intent like 
that's not enough, it, it part of it. So I guess what I'll, I'll say is this: if somebody is going to be a leader, I don't think they should seek it out. I think that that's one of those things where it is. So okay, actually, let me even back up from that. A leader is a change maker. It's not people who necessarily consider themselves leaders. It's not anybody who necessarily seeks out to be leaders, but it's for me, at least it's for people who are looking to make the world better than the, the world that they entered for the most part. And not just for themselves, but for those around them, for people who need it, for those who need it more than others. So that is somebody who I can get behind. That is somebody who I can sit back and say, I like what you're doing. I might not agree with everything that you're doing, but if you are trying to build something in a non-exploitative way that is going to benefit more than just you, then I'm going to look at you as a leader of, you know, what it is in that you're doing. But when you get into the other camp, the toxic camp, you know, the narcissism camp, the <laughs> the power, mm-hmm. you know, mongrel camp, then nah i'm not i'm not down with that i'm not even trying to entertain that they're not leaders they're actually problems that need to be taken care of <laughs> mm-hmm. you're, you're right listen so what, what with that you know how how do or what are your thoughts or how do you define mindfulness oh i talk about this all the time i don't actually use that word but I talk about it all the time, which is, you know, constantly being aware of what it is that you were doing and why you were doing it. Um, and always interrogating what it is that you're doing and challenging yourself about it. Because there are things, and this is just being a black person in America, right? You, in order for you to survive, there are ways where you have to actually subvert who you are, your humanity in order to survive because economic, your economic freedom is actually like, I don't know if there's actually really a such thing, but we need money to survive. And there are people who will have you jump through all kinds of hoops for that money and to survive. And so you find yourself in situations where you are having to, you know, quiet yourself, make yourself smaller, hide aspects of yourself, not confront things. Because if you do, then it's a direct threat to your economic well-being, which is a direct threat to your survival. So I get that that happens. I do it myself. I am not happy that I have to do it. I actually hate it. But I'm always aware of the fact that I'm doing it. Because if you don't keep yourself aware of what you're doing, then it becomes habit and you stop thinking about it. And then you start doing it in other ways. And you're not actually examining why you're doing it or who it's harming when you're doing it. Mm. Staying mindful of it, staying aware of the the damaging, toxic decisions that you're you're actually being forced to make, right? It at least keeps you looking for solutions, looking for ways where you don't have to make decisions like that, looking for ways where you can eliminate that kind of stuff from your life, because because I mean, as I said, it's toxic, it's bad overall for us, and if you make toxic your new normal then you, you're really just, all you're, all you're really doing is hurting yourself. So yeah, I, mindfulness is extremely important. It's being aware of what you're doing. It's consciously making these decisions. You know, if you consciously decide that you're going to work with the racist and if you work with white people, you are, then notice what you're doing and then watch out for the things that can happen that you might find yourself starting to have to co-sign on or fight against in order to minimize the damage that you're doing in that position because that that has to happen. Otherwise, you're just doing the work of white supremacy. And I'd hope that you would not want to do that. Who's a person that may have had a tremendous impact on your own, you know, personal development and maybe how have they impacted you? You know, I am one of those people who I've I've never had like superheroes. Although I will say this, there are a lot of women online who I follow, who are activists, who are organizers, who speak about these very complicated issues and they put their stuff out there. And I really admire what they're doing. Um, 
Creighton Lee is someone who I follow on Facebook and she is always doing direct support for black women. So she does asks for money and then she transfers the money to women in need. So women in need and like all kinds of situations, be it they're trying to escape um, a domestic abuse situation or they are stranded and they need gas money or just something along those lines. She is always doing direct asks. She's been sending money, no, not money, actual water to Flint for the past like year or two. Mm. Very much into direct contributions. I love that she does that. Um, Didi Delgado is another woman who is very outspoken about racism and so forth, and to the point that like she's gotten a lot, she's gotten banned a lot from stuff, says a lot of things that are hard to say, and wears her, like what it is that she does just out there. Um, the women who are living their very complicated lives visibly and letting themselves sharing their vulnerability and you know their I, and I even can't call them flaws their humanity their fullness of their humanity with the world. Um, I respect the people who are doing that, and they are basically making it safer and easier for other black women who have been suppressing themselves to stop doing that, to learn that you can actually be freer and do things and say things and stand up for yourself and make space for yourself. So for my work, when I talk about being in this interracial relationship or having white people who are friendly in my life, I always am bringing my blackness right there front and center. It is always going to be a part of whatever it is that I'm doing. And if you have a problem with it, then, you know, you can go. And so for me, it's, hey, I'm telling you about how I made space in my relationship and made it so that my husband had to acknowledge his racism and work on trying to dismantle, you know, the ways in which he contributes to oppression you know, like he had to make active changes in that. And it's not going to work for everybody. And it might not work for us long term. But this is what I'm doing. And you can do this too. So a lot of it is just, I want you to see you don't have to do the things that society tells you that you're supposed to do to be a good version of whatever identity it is that you have. There's room for all of us. And the more of us that speak out about it and share it, the more things will start to change because people can see what's possible and improve on it. Mm. So with that, is there a, what's a book, no, a resource, let me say, not book, because it could be a book, but what's a resource, you know, whether it's a book, movie, podcast, TED Talk, essay, anything in particular that maybe has been really influential in your own personal growth and development that you'd like to share uh, with the listeners? So, there is a podcast I listen to, and I'm not just saying it because I was on it re recently, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's called Tea with Queen and Jay, and they are two New York black women in New York City who talk about um, being black women. It's about dismantling patriarchy and like interrogating pop culture through the lens of being black womenists. Um, and it is, I learn something every day. They are so unapologetic. They are so open about trying to really just survive. And I say survive, and I, in my mind, I'm always like, no, it's not surviving, but it is. It's just being able to live as a fully fleshed out human being while being told constantly that you aren't allowed to and you aren't supposed to. So they're constantly interrogating that. And I learned so much from listening to them and I respect what they do, like, because they are in your face and they are people who have difficult conversations and they say hard stuff and they don't try to conform to, you know, oh, I'm gonna be this respectable woman, this, you know, kind and gentle, soft-spoken, whatever. They don't do any of that. They just like, like, yeah, nah, this is fucked up. Let's talk about why this is trash. And I love it. I love people who don't try to be something that they're not and instead are this is what who I am and this is what I can do for people and I'm doing that shit and here you go. So 
I love that podcast. I, and mind you, I'm not a huge podcast podcast person, even though I'm on one. Um, but I highly <laughs> recommend that one if you were trying to really start interrogating like popular culture. If you're looking at the news, because they do talk about stuff that's in the, the media and all, in a way where you are directly confronting white supremacy and saying fuck that. Mm. And so the question I'd like to, to kind of cap the interview with, um, which I love this question, um, at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, see, that's a mean question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you old vain, narcissistic, <laughs> self-involved no. person. What do, you want your, what do you want the world to remember you for? Um, it, you know, <sighs> That's a hard one. Okay. I want to be remembered for changing how you see the world. I And that's really it. Like, I can't, I, I have no intention of, you know, making a hero. I have no intention of really being a hero. Um, I mean, I'm my own hero, and that's because I have to be. But I just want people to open themselves up to understanding that there are different perspectives out there that exist simultaneously with yours and all of them are true that two of you can be in the exact same situation and have two different perspectives two different ideas of what actually happened there and understand that both of them are true and real things it's not we aren't living linear lives as much as we'd like to pretend that we are we are actually living these simultaneous li lives at, with everyone else. And so you have to be open to the fact that just because something is true for you, it might not be true for the person sitting next to you. And then listen to what that is and to try to understand why and to know that you're not going to understand it all the time. But you have to, at the very least, acknowledge that there is a different experience than yours. Yours is not the only one and that you need to consider that shit. So if anybody, if I could have anybody walk away from me doing that, then I feel like I, I've done something important. And yeah, that's, that's really what matters to me. I mean, that's the reason why I, I write so that you can get this other perspective, a different perspective and then start thinking about your shit. And maybe uh, start fixing it. Start fixing it. Yes, definitely. So, definitely yeah. gotta start fixing it. <laughs> well, listen, Tyler. You gotta admit it. You know, that's that's true. That's very true. That's very true. And that's the first step. That gotta be the first step. And if we get more people yeah. to admit the bullshit, then you know, it's a step in the right direction. Basically. Well Talon, thank you. This was a this was a dope conversation. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to chat with me. It means a lot. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you for inviting me. I love talking about this stuff. I'm always like, people talk to me. I just want you hear me. I just want to talk about it. I can't, I can't help you change how you see shit if you don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> for my listeners that want to get in contact with you and want to learn more about, you know, your, your, your writing, um, you know, the videos that you do more and to dive more into your perspective, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So um, I have a website, talinkel.com, and that's T-A-L-Y-N-N-K-E-L.com. Um, and that basically will take you to all the stuff that I have. So if you're somebody who likes Twitter, um, I'm on Twitter as talinkel, but there's a link on the site. Same thing with Instagram. I'm on Medium, if some people prefer that when they're looking at essays and so forth. Um, the videos for YouTube are on my site. The, the podcast, which I'm on, New Wakanda, which is just about being a Black creative, also on my site. So basically, if you go to my site, it's a portal to pretty much anywhere I'm posting something. <laughs> um, and I, my email is talonkel at gmail.com. Hmm? It's a portal to dopeness. Well, yeah. uh, well, thank you. But yeah, then talonkel yeah. at gmail is my, my email address. And I do get people who email me sometimes. So feel free. I mean, don't spam me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, feel free. I'm Like I said, I'm available. And um, I do like talking about this stuff. If I can help, I will. Perfect.
thank you, Tom. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you again for your continued support of the Mindful Rebel podcast. I appreciate the listens. I appreciate you vibing with the podcast. Um, if you would like to check out past episodes, please go to any of your favorite podcasts and platforms. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Anchor FM. If you want to learn more about me and what I do as a creative, an educator, and a scholar, you can go to my website. That's SeanJMoore.com. Again, that's SeanJMoore.com to learn a little bit more about me and what I do. Uh, again, thank you for your continued support. Please, any feedback that you have, any potential guests that you'd like to hear on the podcast, don't hesitate to reach out. Let me know what you think. Uh, all feedback is welcome. Thank you.